Thank you for your good reading this morning. We're we'll looking at verse 20. Then answered I them and said unto them, The God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore we his servants will arise and build. But ye have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. And let's ask God for his help. Our Father, as we come to thee, pray for thy help. Lord, we are a needy people, and the preacher is certainly needy, needy of grace. May thy word come across with power. May thy people receive it. Would you give wisdom, guide my thoughts, put a guard upon my lips, watch on my tongue. I might only speak those things which are honorable to thee. Give wisdom, give grace. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, we come to the book of Nehemiah. I'm going to give you a little bit of a background to this passage. When we come to the book of Nehemiah, we find a man named Nehemiah at the center of this book. Now, Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer. And when Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah begins, we find him in Shushan, the winter palace, the court with the king. His name is King Artaxerxes. And he was there to serve the king. And while Nehemiah was there serving the king in this winter palace of Shushan, he was approached by a man named Hanani and a few other men. And they came to Nehemiah. I imagine they would have been out of breath or deeply distressed. And they came to him and, and they told him, there's terrible news about Jerusalem. Nehemiah, the city of your fathers, the city where God's name was specifically placed, is in a terrible condition. The walls are destroyed. The gates are burned with fire. And you see, if the walls are destroyed and the gates are burned with fire, <clears throat> the people would have been easy, easy, um, easy pickings for any of the nations round about to come in and do whatever they wanted with him. With them, there's actually a um, a record of of this situation by Josephus, the historian, and he recorded that during the time that Nehemiah lived, the walls being torn down and the gates burned with fire, things were so bad that quote the roads were in the daytime. This is in Jerusalem, found full of dead men, end quote. And so, because there were no walls, because there was no gate, the enemies of Jerusalem could come in and do whatever they wanted. And the roads were full of dead men. Dead men from the people of God. This is a terrible, terrible thing. You see, at this time, we have to understand what's going on with Jerusalem. You remember, after Solomon's death, the kingdom was split into the northern and southern kingdoms. Israel to the north, Judah to the south. Israel was taken into Assyrian captivity. Judah in the south, finally into Babylonian captivity. And then you remember that the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians and the Persians under King Cyrus sent a number of the people back to Jerusalem to build the temple. But the people did not build it very quickly. It took them 21 years, I believe, um, to build the temple when the actual building process only took them about four. They just focused on their own homes and their own situation and left God's house waste 
So God sent Haggai and Zechariah to stir the people, build the temple, build God's house. What are you doing? Focusing on your own homes when God's house lies waste. And then a number of years later, Ezra was sent back and he came with the law and he applied the law to the people. And then after all of that, we find the days of Nehemiah. And so Jerusalem is, is still not fully built up. The people are still under, as well now, Persian captivity as they're sent back to Jerusalem. There's a great need for the city to be built up. The walls are destroyed. The gate is burned with fire. And Nehemiah, when he heard the news of the condition of Jerusalem, was deeply and profoundly moved. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4 says, And it came to pass when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. You see, when Nehemiah heard that this had happened in Jerusalem or that the gate was burned and the walls were broken down, it moved him. He could not just keep going with normal life. The Bible says he sat down. He sat down. This was so grieving to him. He couldn't, whatever he was about to do, let's say he was going to get lunch, I don't know. He sat down. He couldn't go on with normal life. This so deeply moved him and gripped him at his soul that he sat down. And then the Bible says he wept. See him with his head in his hands. He's weeping. Tears are falling down from his eyes, his face. His hands are wet with tears. He's choking. He's weeping because he's so moved. He's mourning. He's sad. He's sorrowful. This isn't a show. He's pained as if he lost a loved one for certain days. And then he goes to God. He fasts. He says, I cannot go on. I cannot go on with the city of God in this condition. I cannot go on. I have to seek God. I'm going to fast and I'm going to pray to the God of heaven. And so he prays and he seeks God. And I just have to say, and I'm going to speak personally today with regards to this congregation, this reminds me in some ways of our own situation. I know that the reality is that we're looking at a building that needs to be moved, a Sunday school building that is not up and running, things that need to be fixed, things that need to be done. And in some ways... The walls are thrown down and the gates are burned with fire. And we have to get to the point where we sit down and weep and fast and seek the face of God. To where we cannot go on until God's house is built back up. Until it becomes such a burning passion in our souls that we can't go on the way we just maybe have been. 
that we have to seriously, earnestly seek the face of God as Nehemiah did. And so Nehemiah sought the face of his God and this is very Christ-like, by the way, the Lord Jesus. I think of how he wept in Luke 19, verse 41 over Jerusalem. Christ is deeply concerned with his people and with the glory and honor of his name. And so what does Nehemiah do? Well, Nehemiah, one day, he goes into the king, goes into King Artaxerxes, and he's his cupbearer. This is a normal occurrence, but he doesn't look happy as usual. And as he comes into the king, the king says, Nehemiah, what's wrong? Nehemiah responds, No, king, if it please you, please listen to me. My city, the city of my fathers, the city of my God, it's, it's, it's destroyed. It's it's not what it once was. It's a reproach now. and The way it looks, it's, it's fallen apart. It's, it's, just, it's just burdening me. It's breaking my heart. And I can't be happy in the presence of the king. And he says, king, would you let me go home? Would you let me build the walls? Would you let me repair the gate? And the king, graciously, because God was in this, said, yes, Nehemiah, you can go. And so Nehemiah went all the way back to Jerusalem. He was given safe passage, and he went all the way back home. And as we read in Nehemiah chapter 2, he at night went to look at the city to see how bad everything really was because there were a number of people, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, as we read later, who did not want Jerusalem to be built back up. And so Nehemiah goes at night. He looks at the city. He sees what's happened, and he tells the people, let us build up the wall of Jerusalem. In verse 17, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, how the gates are burned with fire. Come, let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. He told them, the hand of my God is good upon me. God's hand's on me. Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. But when Samballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the servant, the Ammonite, and Geshem, the Arabian, heard it, they laughed us to scorn. They said, what are you doing? What are you doing? This is impossible. Jerusalem is waste. Nobody can build this city up. It's over. What are you doing? They asked what is this thing that you do? Laughing at them. Will you rebel against the king? And so there they're questioning, are you trying to build back up Jerusalem so you can rebel against the king? Is that what you're trying to do? This is ridiculous. This is foolish. You're under the power of King Artaxerxes. You can't do anything. You're fools. Any work of God will have opposition. There's never opportunity without opposition, ever. The way forward is always paved with God's enemies. You were never built without battling. And they faced opposition and we face opposition. That shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. There will be opposition. And like Sam Ballad and Tobiah and Geshem, who's really behind that? The devil, by the way. Like them, we have voices in our own minds. 
laughing us to scorn, laughing you to scorn, saying, this work will never be built up. This can never be done. This can never be accomplished. Just give up. Just come and, and accept that this is the way it is. Just come and, and just kind of hold on and wait until Christ comes and don't try to go forward. Don't try to build anything. It's over. The best you can do is just maintain. What do you do? When you see all the opposition, when you see how difficult it is, when the devil, through Sam Ballots and Tobias and Geshems, is whispering in your ear, this can never be done, what do you do? Well, you answer your accuser, and you give him the answer Nehemiah did in verse 20. The first thing Nehemiah said was this, the God of heaven, he will prosper us. So the God of heaven, he will prosper us. Their resolve to work, if you look at the next part of verse 20, is in the light of who their God is. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build. <clears throat> Why would they build in the face of all this opposition, in the face of all this difficulty? Because the God of heaven, he will prosper us. And it will be only when our hearts are gripped with the sight of God as he is the God of heaven, as he is the God of supreme sovereignty, which is what that word, this designation of God means. And we are convinced that he is with us, that he will prosper us, that we will go forward. Because the church or the man or the woman who is convinced that God is with them is unstoppable. But we must be convinced of that. He is the God of heaven. This means two things. It means that he reigns from heaven and it means he reigns over heaven. He reigns from heaven. His throne is the highest. Psalm 11, verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyelids, his eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. His throne is in the heavens. It's the highest. He's over every earthly king. He's over every earthly power. He's over absolutely everything. Every city court is under his jurisdiction. Every supreme court is under his authority. Every emperor and every king is under his authority. He reigns from heaven. His throne is in the heavens. He's above all. And because he's above all, no one can stand in his way. Nobody can say unto him, what doest thou, as Daniel says. Nobody can say no to the God who's the God of heaven. And so, Nehemiah, you need strength to complete this work. Well, the God of heaven, he can give you the strength. Sambal and Tobiah and Geshem, they're coming against you and they're trying to stop the work. Well, the God whose throne is in heaven can, with a snap of his fingers, do away with all of the opposition. Sambal, Tobiah, and Geshem are nothing in comparison with the God whose throne is in heaven. His throne is in heaven. He's the God of heaven. The fact that his throne is in heaven also speaks to his transcendence. The vast chasm that separates the creator from the creature and the infinite from the finite separates the God whose throne is in the heavens from men whose thrones are on the earth. They are nothing in comparison with him. 
To try to stand against God is like an ant holding a match trying to melt an iceberg. You cannot stop God. And then he reigns over heaven. And this is significant. Often in Scripture, the phrase, the God of heaven, is paired with the description of how God reigns over the earth. And the idea is that the God who reigns over the heavenly realm, the God who reigns over the angelic host, who are the most glorious beings created, easily, easily reigns over the earth. And so, in Ezra 1 verse 2, it was said of King Cyrus, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven. See, he's the Lord God of heaven. And what's the application? He hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. The God who is the God of heaven easily disposes of earthly matters. I don't know what is necessary to do the work that this congregation wants to see done here. But I can tell you right now that God is able. He's able to give the money that's necessary. He's able to move the hearts of people that is necessary. He's able to do anything that is necessary to do his work. But do we believe that? You want to know what proves whether we believe it or not? Our praying. It was because Nehemiah was convinced that the God he served was the God of heaven that he fasted and prayed and sought God for days until God Almighty would answer from heaven. That is the proof that we really believe that God is who he says he is. Would you like to prove God? I want to prove God. You've proved him in your life. You can prove him again. The bigger the difficulty, the more glory he receives. He delights in impossibilities. He delights in using little things. He's the God of heaven. There's nothing too hard for him. And Nehemiah was convinced he will prosper us. How can he be so convinced that God would prosper him? Because he was convinced that what he was doing was God's will. And you and I must be convinced that what you're doing is God's will. And what, wherever this congregation goes, whoever comes to lead this congregation, it doesn't matter. You all must be convinced that you are doing God's will. Why is there a church like this here? Is it even necessary? Is there even a need? There are churches all over. Why is this church here? Why don't you all go to other churches? Why come here? Why is it needed? Well, for one thing, there's two and a half million people in the metro area in Orlando, and there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands without the gospel that are lost. There are families that are wrecked and destroyed and ruined. There are people that are strung out on drugs and alcohol all over the city that are in desperate need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's one reason why you're here. That's one reason why you're needed here. There's a need for a thousand churches here to reach all the lost. And there's another reason too. 
This church is not perfect. The Free Presbyterian Church is not perfect by any means. But I think at least here, for one thing, you will receive Reformed doctrine. Receive the teaching which is known as Calvinism, Reformed theology, which we believe is the teaching of Scripture, which has been passed down to us from the apostles and the fathers and to the Reformation. And we stand in the heritage of these men, the heritage of the preachers of the Great Awakening, the heritage of the Puritans. We stand in that heritage. And we pass this truth down, this truth that is so desperately needed, of a man who's totally depraved, without any hope, of a God who's sovereign and gracious, who saves freely and fully through faith alone, by grace alone. We preach the word of God, believing it's inspired, preaching it, believing that the preaching of the word is what is the greatest need believing in sola scriptura, unleashing the word of God. And here I think at least we know that we're seeking, not perfectly, but seeking to have a reverent church service where we worship the Lord in reverence and in holiness, where there's not all the accoutrements and entertainment, that not in every church, by no means do I want to take a broad brush to all the churches in the area. There are some I know that are good churches, but many, 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 many churches filled with thousands of people are full of every kind of entertainment that you could imagine that the Puritans and the Reformers would have nothing to do with. And we are seeking by God's grace to try to keep everything out that would hinder from the worship, the pure worship of God. I met a man at a coffee shop in Winter Garden, an Axum coffee shop this past week, who goes to a, a very fast-growing church in Winter Garden that's quite large. I believe he teaches Sunday school there. And he said, I want to invite you to my men's Bible study. So, you know, I talked with him. It was a nice talk. And he said, I want to invite you. And um, he said, we meet in the barrel room of the brewery and we give out free beer. And we had 100 people come. And God's doing a great work People are, lives are being changed. We give out free beer and you just never imagine how many people come. So you should come. We'll give out free beer and we'll meet in the barrel room. Meet in. And so that kind of thing is going on. And there is a need. There is a need for a people. Not, not that we're better by no means by, than others. I don't know all the churches in this area, but I do know that there is a need for a congregation that seeks to worship God in holiness, seeks to be pure and separate from the world, there is a need. We have people that are reformed in preaching, reformed in doctrine, but not reformed in worship. And the vision of the reformers in Sola Scriptura is to bring all things into conformity to Scripture. It's not enough to have good preaching, but poor worship. And that's the trend, is we'll have the preaching that's reformed, but we'll have all the other things, the worldliness and the entertainment in our churches. And if you look at the fastest growing churches in our nation, you'll find every single one of them has the exact same style. The certain kind of music, certain kind of church, certain kind of culture draws all the people in. But what we want to do is to see truth captivate the minds and hearts of people 
And like the preachers of old, like Spurgeon, who just stood and preached, and nothing more than hymns sung in an organ, or Martin Lloyd-Jones, who stood at Westminster Chapel in, in England and preached with tremendous power and zeal, and yet there was none of the flash that we have today. And people were transformed. There was a sense of the holiness of God and the gravity of sin that came over the area. And so there's a need. And you must become convinced in your soul that this is the will of God. That to have this kind of church in Orlando here is the will of God. That it's necessary, it's needed. That must become a burning conviction in your heart that we're not here out of mere convenience. We're here out of conviction. Conviction. You become convinced of that. The corollary will be that you will become convinced that he will prosper. Because you'll be convinced that this is of God. That's what drove a Luther to stand against Rome. He knew this was God's will. In the face of tremendous opposition. Second, not only the God of heaven, he will prosper us, but <clears throat> second, we have resolved to build the wall no matter what. This is what Nehemiah said to his accusers. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build. And just notice there first, this was the resolve of the people. And he is shouting his resolve back. And he's saying, Sam, Ballot, Tobiah, Geshem, you listen to me. We have resolved to build this no matter what. So we don't care what you say. We have resolved to build. And it was, a it was the resolve of the people. It wasn't just the resolve of Nehemiah. A good leader will mobilize the people. This is not the resolve of your preacher Wherever your pastor will be, this is not his resolve merely, the resolve of your elders, the resolve of the deacons. It must be the resolve of you. You must resolve to build this wall. You must resolve to do this work. You must resolve in your heart that I will labor. I will bear the yoke. I will see this built up and prove the Lord and be able to see what God only can do. It's, it's the job of the people. And then Nehemiah leads by example, doesn't he? He doesn't sit back while everybody else goes to work. He says, we. He's out there sweating. He's out there laboring. He's out there working. So the elders, the deacons, leading by example. And the people following. This is a work we are all called to. Every single individual in this building. Second, this was a resolve of servants. Nehemiah said, therefore we his servants. What defines you? What defines Nehemiah and these people? We are the servants of God. This is what defined the Apostle Paul. He called himself the servant of Jesus Christ. James, himself a servant of God and of Jesus Christ. Peter called himself a servant of Jesus Christ in their epistles. What defines you? Have you given your life over? I will serve Jesus Christ. I'm not here to serve myself. I'm not here to make a ton of money. I'm not here to try to become famous or whatever. I am here to serve Jesus Christ. I have given my life. I have lost my life. 
I've lost my life for Christ. I've given my life for Jesus. For his glory, for his people, for his church, I've given myself. I'm not a somebody who comes to church and sits in a pew. I'm a servant. I'm a servant to my other fellow believers, but I'm a servant first and foremost to Jesus Christ. I exist to serve him. That is why I'm here. And wherever he puts me, I will serve him. And he has put me here. He's put you here. He's put you in this church. And this, you could have been born anytime. You could have been born anywhere. You could have ended up any place. But you are here in this congregation. And you are a servant of Jesus Christ. And you've been called to serve God here. So work to be done and servants are needed. Third, this was a resolve to build. He says, therefore we as servants will arise and build. And, you know, when I read this, this just struck my heart about this congregation. This is a time of building. Sometimes it's a time of tearing down. Sometimes it's a time of, <clears throat> yes, sometimes of maintaining, but sometimes it's a time to build. I <clears throat> watched something by, it was a biography of a man who led a very liberal seminary back to being conservative. And he told about how difficult it was, how he had to kick out so many professors. He lost so much of the student body and he had to tear down. But when he lost everything, he made the statement, a good leader is not only able to tear down, but then must build. In Nehemiah, the people held a spear or a sword in one hand and a trowel in another hand. They battled as they built. And you see, if all we're good at is battling, if all we're good at is battling, then all you do is you whittle down the people to where it should be, getting out the, those who are teaching false things or weeding out the, those people who are causing issues in the church. But if all you can do is battle and you can never build, you will never be able to, come to, to do the work of the Lord. You've got to be able to build. And I think in our denomination, and may I say, perhaps even in this congregation, this is a time to build. There has been a tearing down time. This is a time to build. A time to build up the walls. This is the time. And we must not only be able to fight the battles until things are pure and right and clean and good and, and the doctrine is what we want it to be. We must then be able to build. Not just battle, but build. And Nehemiah was the kind of leader that he built as he battled. And this is a time we need to build. And by the way, this means it's going to be hard work. It's going to be hard. It's going to be laborious. To build a wall is not easy. It means there's going to be sweat. There's going to be tears. There's going to be blood spilt. It's going to be hard work. That means everybody here it's going to have to work. It means the elders, the deacon, is going to have to work. The preacher has to work. We will all have to labor to build the wall. You never, ever accomplish anything worthwhile outside of labor. It's hard work, and it's going to take work. One of the Proverbs says, I'm not going to quote this right, but it says that 
where the oxen is, the crib, wherever an ox is, the, the crib is dirty. But much strength is by the ox. What does it mean? If you've got an ox, you're going to have a dirty crib. But if you've got an ox, you're going to get the job done. Meaning, if you want to get the job done, you're going to have a dirty crib. You're going to have to work to clean up all the mess. You're going to have to work hard to have the ox. You're going to have to work hard to take care of the ox, to clean the ox. If you want to see anything done, you've got to have an ox. As one preacher said, keep the ox and clean the crib. Don't kick the ox out. Keep the ox. But understand, you're going to have to clean the crib. It's going to be hard work. It's, going to be, it's, hard, work. it's hard work to reach the lost. It's hard work to have ministries. It's, it's not easy. It's not easy to knock doors. If that's what you, you feel led to do, it's not easy to pray and to seek the face of God. It's not easy to try to speak to people day by day and try to bring them the gospel and invite them. It's not easy to have special meetings and try to bring people. It's not easy to try to have children's meetings. It's not easy. None of it's easy. None of it's easy. But we've not been called to ease. We've not been called to ease and have our vacation here in Orlando, Florida, right? We're called to work. We're called to do a work for God. And that's going to take labor. It's going to be hard. And I just tell you right now, it's going to be hard because I know it's going to be hard. I think of the, the issues that Nehemiah faced. Um, he faced opposition from without. Samballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. He faced opposition from within. One of the things he faced was much rubbish. In Nehemiah 4, verse 10, And Judah said, The strength of the bearers of burdens is decayed, and there is much rubbish so that we're not able to build the wall. As they started to build the wall, you know what they found? A bunch of rubbish. What's that? Before they could even build the wall, they had to clear all this junk out of the way before they could even build the wall. And so when they started, when they started out on it, they didn't see much fruit at all. All they did for a while is just put away rubbish. And they became discouraged, and they were worn out, and they were tired. Sometimes there's much rubbish that has to be moved. And there might be things they're going to take time and labor and you won't see fruit immediately but you have to get all the rubbish out of the way there might be rubbish in our own lives <clears throat> that has to be moved out of the way for God to work might be rubbish <clears throat> even in a building that has to be moved out of the way well before we can do much we've got to get that building out of the way it just reminds me so much of the rubbish But we've been called to build. No matter how much rubbish there is, you've got, we've got to stick to the job. Because God will prosper His people. But be not weary in well-doing. For in due season, you shall reap if you faint not. There's much rubbish. Second thing they faced was they were afraid of Samballot's armies. Samballot said he was going to attack them and he had massive armies and he was going to come after them and destroy them and fear gripped them. Fear. Fear paralyzes. And fear can grip us even here. We're afraid. Maybe we don't have the money. We're afraid. We're afraid. We just don't know 
if the people are gonna gonna want anything like this. We're just we're paralyzed with fear. But remember the God of heaven, He is with you. He will prosper you. There's another thing too. In the midst of their building, there is an issue of greed among the people. You know that? The people fought one another. And people were using money in an immoral way and the rich Jews were exploiting the situation in Jerusalem to gain, get more gain. And you know what you're going to find? I can guarantee you, if you try to build, you're going to have conflict within the own, your own body. It's a sad thing, but it will happen. So don't be surprised when it happens. Don't be surprised when you have opposition. When you have opposition, you can know for sure God's in it. I work with a missionary in England. He was trying to make a decision about something and he got word that everything was easy and clear. And he said, I don't feel good about this. There should be more opposition. There's just something he had seen in, in his life. He's seen that a lot of times as he went forward in God's work, there was opposition. And I can guarantee you, just like Nehemiah, you're going to have fear, you're going to have rubbish that's going to be taken out of the way. You're going to labor and not see fruit for a while. And you're going to have people that are fighting with other people in their own congregation. It will happen. You have issues. But you've got to keep building. You can't give up. You've got to keep building. You've got to keep laboring. You've got to keep going. You must resolve to build. And so Nehemiah says to his accusers, We, his servants, will arise and build. And you must resolve in your soul we will arise and build. It doesn't matter. Think, well, our numbers, are so, our numbers are small. People in this area don't want this kind of a church. We resolve to build. We resolve to lift up our eyes and look at Christ and His power. And we resolve to put our shoulders to the plow and to do the work of God, no matter how long it takes no matter what kind of fruit he gives us, we will build the walls. Why? We cannot sit back and look at God's city with the gate burned with fire and the walls thrown down. We've got to do something. That's what Nehemiah is saying. We have to do something. Nehemiah went home. He's like, I've got to build this. I've got to seek God. I've got to fast. I've got to get a hold of God. I cannot just sit back and watch God's city go to waste. And I challenge you and I today, we cannot sit back and just look at the walls that are broken down, the gates burn with fire, if that is in some way true here. <clears throat> God is able. And if he, he used 12 disciples to take the gospel to the world, what could He do with you? What could he do with you, each of you? He can do much. He can do mighty things. We have a good group here that loves the Lord and seeks the Lord of people who pray. God can do great things. God can do great things. And finally, Nehemiah responds to his accusers and he says, basically, you have nothing to do with Christ's church. You have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. What's he saying? He's saying, Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem, you have no authority here. 
This is God's city. You don't own a plot of land here. You don't have a say in what we do. You're not a member of this city. They outrightly, outright reject the discouragements of these accusers. They, they don't even have time to listen. Why? Because you don't have any authority here. Let me tell you something. Jesus Christ rules in this church. And no devil has the right to come here and to cause God's people to be discouraged and to cause God's people to fear. Because he has no right, nor memorial, nor portion in Jerusalem. He has nothing to do with Christ's church. And if Jesus will build his church, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. His accusations are groundless, and they're worthless, and they're not even worth listening to. When the devil says, huh, what are you doing? You can't do anything. Look at this. Look at your situation. What can you do? There's no way. You have no right. You have no memorial. You have no portion in Christ's church. We follow our head. He is the captain of the Lord's hosts. He is the head of the church. Jesus says what will happen, and Jesus gives the increase and has nothing to do with you. He has the authority. And this is Christ's church. And we are Christ's. We are heirs of Christ. We are heirs of the world. We are the ones who have received the righteousness of, of Christ. We are the ones who have been pardoned and forgiven. We are the sons and daughters of God. We're in union with Jesus Christ. We have an open throne in prayer to go to. We have the promises of God all throughout Scripture that are ours for the taking. We have the invitations of God to seek me, to seek my face, and I will do great and mighty things which you know not. This is your church and Christ's church and the devil has no right, nor memorial, nor portion in this congregation, in this church. It is Christ. So you have nothing. You have nothing to do with this church. And so I don't even have to listen to you. I'm not even going to give you the time of day. I'm not going to give the doubts the time of day. I'm not going to give the devil's accusations the time of day. Because I follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will build and we will serve him. And whenever he gives the increase, he gives it. But he is worthy to be served. And no one can stop him. <clears throat> so, Nehemiah says, God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build. But he have no portion nor right, no memorial in Jerusalem. And I just want to encourage you today, as you look at this coming year, maybe even at the years ahead, that you have been given a wonderful opportunity in this place to see God do something. The church in Greenville, Faith Free, you all know it didn't pop up out of the ground, right? Didn't just come up out of nowhere. When Dr. Cairns went there, they, they, they preached and had meetings in a house. It took a long time to build that work. A lot of labor, a lot of, a lot of sweat, a lot of tears went into that. And then that was built. Think of the church in Toronto. I see a school, a beautiful uh, you know, building with a number of people coming. They just pop out of the ground. By the way, they received a gift, I believe, I think it was a million dollars one time to build what they needed to get built. 
I went to a school, Crown College, some went to Bob Jones, other places where we've seen what God has done. It did not come without some group of people saying, we will build. And the God of heaven, he will prosper us. And there's no telling what God can do if that grips our hearts. And we build for the glory of God. We believe it. God is able. He's given us a work to do. Let's seek his face. And let's build the wall for Jesus' sake. Let's end with a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank thee that we have been told, fear not. Fear not, neither be thou dismayed. The Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. And that thou wilt prosper us. That thou wilt strengthen us. Help us to build, Lord. Lord, we confess our faith is weak. Our flesh is weak. And yet, Lord, wouldst thou help us? Wouldst thou take our, our feeble efforts and like that little lad who just gave a couple pickled fish and some barley loaves, feed 5,000 with it. Bless this congregation, Lord. Bless the people here. Bless this church. Use it for thy glory. Use it to see souls saved. Use it to see believers built up. Use it to see children reach with the gospel. You're able, Lord. There's nothing too hard for thee. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.